welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alexander, president of Agco Automotive, and today's show is a pre-recorded show, but I have an awful lot of really good information for you, and I hope you'll really like it. And of course, as always, if you have a question for me and you can't reach me on the radio show, you can always log on to our website. That's www.ag. C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. And an easy way to remember that is Altazan's Garage Company. That's where the word Agco comes from. You say at Agco Auto, pop a dot com on the end, and you've got it. When you get on that website, you're going to see a contact button on every single page. There's one right in the menu that says contact, and of course, the bottom of the page, it repeats the same thing again. So no matter what page you're on, if you click the contact button, it's going to bring you to a little form that you fill out. Now, the reason that we use this little form is so I can get the information I need to answer your question. Now, not real difficult. Just ask you for your name. It also asks where you're from. And the reason being, because if you're from Baton Rouge, I may want to suggest that you bring it by the shop or something so I can take a look at it. If you're from California, I can't do that. So I'm going to tailor my answer just a little bit differently because of that. That's the reason we ask that question. It's also ask for your vehicle and the complaint. Now, on the complaint, what I need is, what is the car doing? Very, very often people will write and they'll say, I need a tune-up. Well, that's really not going to tell me what I need to know. What I need to know is, my fuel mileage is off, or hey, my car is hard to start, and it's hard to start after it sits for a while. In other words, first thing in the morning, it's hard to start. I started, I run it for a while, and then it starts okay, but the next morning I get in, it's hard to start. That's the kind of information that I've really got to have to diagnose the car properly. So if you fill that form out, send it to me within 24 hours, I'll get an answer right back to you. Now, if you ever don't get an answer, something must have gone wrong in cyberspace. What can happen is sometimes if you type your email address in improperly, when I go to reply, it just pops back as a mistake. And because there's so many characters and letters and symbols there, I just can't figure it out. So you're not going to get a reply. If that happens, check email address and send it right back to me. Another thing is to use a form each and every time that you send a contact. Reason being, because of the internet being like it is, I get so many emails, I'll get inundated with spam. And what happens is that spam bots can get on, figure out your email address, and just dilute your inbox with spam. So what it does is it shifts my email address that I receive my mail about every other day or so, and that way everything else just goes to a junk bin. Now, as long as you're using a fresh form, the website will automatically take care of that. Make sure you get routed to the correct box. But if you take and reply to an old form or if you add me to your favorites list or something like that, if you try to email again, I just won't receive it. So go to the website each and every time, fill out a fresh form, and I'll be absolutely sure I get an answer right back to you within 24 hours. Something I really enjoy, plus it gives me a lot of good information. There are many, many, many other things you can do while you're on that site, and I urge you to take advantage of those as well. One of the things that a lot of folks really enjoy is the fun section. If you go into several little games, there's an Agco Auto Quick Quiz in which you can take and win an Agco t-shirt. That's a lot of fun, and I'll PS that right on over to you. Several other things you can do. You can play the Agco Hangman game. It's kind of geared around automotive questions. You can go to our photo gallery and see the history and evolution of Agco all the way back to the One Bay Shop in 1974, all the way up to present with several little stops along the way, all documented with photographs. Kind of fun to look at. There's also a section on Agco philosophy, which tells you why we do a lot of the things that we do. We think we're a lot different from the average shop you're going to find. This will tell you an awful lot about why. There's also a section on Agco questions and answers. Simple things like what holidays do you take? When are you on vacation? Along with an interactive calendar. What are your hours? How much you charge for a diagnosis? Why you don't quote prices on the phone? That's another real big one. Folks might want to read and see why we don't do that because we've got a real important reason. Pop on there. See what you think. I think you'll really like it. It's www.agco.com. 
A-U-T-O, agcoauto.com. Awful lot of fun and a lot of good information. A couple of weeks ago, a listener called in with what I thought was an absolutely excellent question. Anyone who's listened to the Automotive Hour for quite a while knows that I usually recommend not buying new cars, instead buying a car about three years old. The reason for that is they're a lot less expensive, and a car three years old probably has not been neglected to any great degree. Most cars just don't require a whole lot of maintenance in the first three years. So you're buying a car close to 65% under the normal price, and you get in a car that really doesn't have a lot of problems. Anyone who listens also knows that I'm really not very crazy about the 2008 and up model domestic cars that are out. They just seem to have way too many problems. They're far, far too complex, and they cost an awful lot to fix. So we sort of have a little paradox. If you're looking for a car three years old, that's going to be a sliding scale. What happens when the car is three years old or the 2008 model domestic cars that are out? I thought it was an excellent question. And at the time, I didn't have an immediate answer for him. But I thought about it since. And I think I'd like to address that in the rest of the show. Because I think it goes right to the point of overall lowest cost. And how we have to start thinking and planning now for what the future holds. Nobody knows the future. But if we make our plans, we'll be much better prepared to take care of whatever comes along. Let's listen to the call. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Doing great, sir. Good morning. Enjoy the show as always. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Well, Lewis and Brian, I have all the money in the world, okay. but I, I think the government's going to want to take that, so I want <laughs> to try sure. to save it. There you go. I want to try to save what I can on the car. And you have two questions. got a 91 and a 93. Do they have the computers, 91 Ford van and a 93 Dodge Caravan, do they have the computers that compensate, as you were just talking oh, yeah. about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, okay. they've yeah. had that price since the mid-80s. Mid-80s, okay. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything with fuel injection Yeah, has a computer in it that runs... Our computers. Our computers, yeah. Now, the, the newer stuff is, of course, more adept at doing it than the older stuff was, but they basically all have computers on them. Yeah, well, that explains a lot about how come it runs great sometimes and other times it's terrible and it's That's nothing right. in between. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lewis, what's a guy to do? Buy a three-year-old car with thirty to 50000 on it or what? Yeah, that's what I would do, Bobby. I, would, I, just, I was in a position where I had to buy a car. I'd go out and try to find something about three years old. The reason I always use the three-year rule is because... In three years, the vehicle's hit maximum depreciation. It's lost as much value as it's going to lose for a while, and it's still in pretty good shape. For instance, if you went to a five-year-old car, yeah, you could buy it a little cheaper, but if the guy never maintained it, you're mm-hmm. going to have some issues. And that's mm-hmm. something you need to look at when you're buying a used car is, does the person selling the car have the maintenance records right. for it? That's a big seller. Yeah, if you're buying a three-year-old car, it probably didn't have a lot of maintenance requirements for four or three years. So even if you just change all, you're probably going to still be in pretty good shape. And you figure most cars lose almost 65% of the value in the first three years. You're going to be pretty good financially, too. Yeah, the, the thing is, if even if you don't need one, should mm-hmm. you, not, you know what I mean, if you're driving a 15 or 17 year old car should you get one now because three years from now if you buy a three year old car it's going to be the junk they're selling well that's right like I tell you I may not be giving this advice in another two years just because okay. it's a sliding scale, okay. after 08, the cars, in my opinion, started getting so bad. That's it. Yeah, you, you have to rethink your strategy at that point. Right now, you could. If your cars you got are not giving you any trouble, you're not spending a lot of money on them, I don't know that I would go and buy a new one unless I just wanted a new one. Well, but, the trouble is if it goes out two or three years from now, yeah. or four years from now, maybe I'm in a less advantageous buying position. I'm going to have to buy something that... You're going to have to buy something that's a little older like because I think what... Unless something drastic changes between now and then, I'm going to recommend people buy okay. our 2007 or older. I wouldn't go to an 8, which means it's going to get to be four years, five years, and so on. We just have to kind of see what happens as we go along. Maybe somebody will wake up and start changing all this. I don't know. A very interesting paradox. I don't know that I would go out and buy another car unless I was just ready for another car, but right now you could do that. 
Yeah, well, like I said, I got to do some thinking because, but that's just because what you said, you know, in four or five years from now, that's great. Now I've got to do something right. or I'm walking. It's like everything else. I was listening to the financial show before we came on. They're talking about predicting for your retirement. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The world's in just such a state of flux, and this country is so unsettled, yep. and nobody knows what to do. And that's what's nobody can predict the future because too many loose cannons and just random factors nobody can predict. And not only that, most of us don't have control over it. That's right. We have and no so, control over it. You know, you, you did this and you did that. Well, that's great. You planned on a 4 or 5 or 6 or 7% return. That's, that's not right. going to happen. That is not there now. And, so. and so now, you know, it's a pretty serious thing for some it of is. the guys on fixed income. Is it? So I, well, I'll say this. we got to watch it day to day to day and see what happens. Right. I think you guys are doing a public service teaching them how to make those things that they got last. That's right. As long as you can. As long as you can. You guys take care. Have a great Okay, Bobby. Week. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have to take a quick little break, but we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. And that's why you never put a dead or live octopus in the microwave. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Hey! Caller, what you want to know? Alphonse, my old truck needs some repairs. Or should I buy a new one to save money? Well, let me get out my calculator here. Let's say a new truck costs about $35,000 plus $3,500 or so in taxes, then higher insurance. And you know, in about three years, the value is going to drop to about $15,000. That's $8,000 a year just to drive it. Wow, I've never thought of it like that. I suggest taking it to Agco Automotive for a general inspection to see if your old truck is worth keeping, which I think it is. And if so, keep bringing it to Agco for regular maintenance, and you'll be able to drive it for a whole lot longer. And I can spend money on other things like my beautiful wife. I'm assuming she's right there in the room with you, huh? Alphonse, you do know it all, don't you? Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco. It's the place to go. Welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, and today's show is pre-recorded, but we've got a lot of really good information. Just before the break, we are talking to Bobby about buying a new car, possibly a used car, and what the best options were. Bobby's concern is an absolute genuine concern, and one that should be of interest to anyone who's trying to make their dollars last as long as they can and stretch their budget as far as they can. Exactly what do we do if the cars after 2008 are very, very complex, very expensive to maintain? You need a used car. You want to buy a car that's in good shape. So what's the answer? Well, I think there's at least three different answers. Number one is, of course, you could buy a Toyota or a Honda. And while they are getting more complex as well, I think that the cost of repair is lower on those, considerably more so in my experience, than it is on the domestic cars. However, I think that's sort of a short-term approach. I'm not really sure how long that's going to hold true, but at least in the immediate term, if you just have to buy a new car, you may want to select one of those. Now, another thing is, if you're going to buy a used car, we may have to buy older used cars in the future. What that means is we're going to have to do a lot better job of checking the cars. In other words, if you buy a car three years old, there's really not a lot of chance that too much is going to be wrong with that car. Most cars don't really require a whole lot of maintenance in the first three years. So even if nothing was done with the car other than all changes, it's still going to be in pretty good shape. But what happens if you need to buy a six-year-old car? Well, it doesn't mean you can't still get an excellent car that's been maintained. A lot of folks do take really good care of their cars, and they do trade every six years. So there are some of those cars on the market. You just have to do a lot better check ahead of time before you purchase the car. Services like our pre-purchase inspection, and of course, a lot of other shops offer that as well. Bring it to a good 
qualified mechanic, have him check that car very thoroughly and make sure that this particular car has been maintained. Now, what that is also going to mean is that with fewer and fewer cars that are, should we say, desirable to buy and more and more people wanting to buy them, the price is likely to rise. I think that's one point going into the future that we can be almost sure of is that the cost of transportation is going to rise. Even buying a used car, as less and less cars are going on to the used car market because people are holding on to their cars that are good longer and longer and longer. You combine that with the programs of the manufacturers to get rid of the used cars are working pretty effectively too. Things like recommending seven, eight, nine, ten thousand mile all change intervals, not recommending that coolant be changed, not recommending that the transmission be serviced. What happens when a car gets to be six, eight, ten years old and it has about a hundred thousand miles and it's been operated under those conditions is you no longer have a car that's viable as a used car. Instead, what you have is a car that's going to the salvage yard. It's just no longer feasible to repair. The cost has exceeded the value of the car by a wide measure. So with fewer and fewer used cars available and more people seeking that avenue as the price of new cars escalates and the quality of new cars gets worse and worse, I think we're going to have to assume that the price of cars is going to go up. What else does that mean? It means that if you have a car, you need to start taking impeccable care of it just because we know that it's going to cost a lot more to replace it down the road. Following the manufacturer's recommended intervals will not do exactly what you need to do. Instead, what you need to go to is a program of really proactively trying to prevent problems. Things like proper transmission services, changing the coolant when the pH gets to 7. That way, you don't start corroding your cooling system eating up components that cost thousands and thousands of dollars to replace down the road. Buying a better tire for your car. It may cost you $200 more to get a quality set of tires over a cheap set of tires, but that quality set of tires lasts longer, does not have to be replaced, and far more to the point, it doesn't tear up that rack and pinion, it doesn't tear up the shocks and struts on your car, it doesn't tear up the wheel bearings. So in effect, what you do is save $200 on a cheap set of tires and tear up twelve dollars to $1,400 of stuff that did not have to be damaged. So your overall cost of driving gets much higher. I see it day after day after day where people will have a car that is very, very good. And as it gets older, they start to take less and less care of it. In other words, they start buying cheaper tires for it. They start skipping a few oil changes, maybe put a cheap battery in it. That is exactly the opposite of what you need to do. Instead, as a car gets older, it needs even better care. Just like as you get a little older, you need a lot better care. When you were young and you kind of stayed up all night and you drank a lot of cola and ate Twinkies and stuff like that, it really didn't have a very profound effect on you because you were pretty robust. As you get older, it doesn't mean you can't live years and years and years more, but you have to take a little better care of yourself. It's exactly the same with a car. We're going to take a real quick little break for now. We'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. I get your kicks. And that's why cayenne pepper should never be stored in the bathroom. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. Call her what you want to know. Alphonse, my car needs a new transmission, but I think there might be some other problems looming in the near future. I might as well get a new car, right? Well, here's what I'll recommend. Take it to the pros at Agco Automotive for a general inspection. They know their stuff and they're mighty honest. They'll be able to see if there's any problems likely in the future and tell you your best option. And if you keep your car, bring it into Agco for regular maintenance and you'll be driving it for a long time. 
Thank you, Alphonse. You do know it all. Say, are you as good looking as you are smart? Well, let's just say, I know you wouldn't be disappointed. Booyah! Learn more about the benefits of AGCO at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. AGCO, it's the place to go. Stop noise off the river to right. Don't mind it cause the man with the whiskers has a lot behind it. But I can't keep punching with the victory crew when you're making me punch you with that bottle blue. I want to give my all if I'm going to give it. But well, welcome back. If you just join us, this is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alzan, president of Agco Automotive. And while today's show is pre-recorded, you can always reach me by logging on to our website. That's www.agco. A-U-T-O.com. That's agcoauto.com. Pop on there, see what you think. I think you'll like it. Get a lot of really good information, save you a whole lot of money. And that's exactly what today's show is about. Maybe what's coming in the future as far as cars and buying new cars, buying used cars, what we're going to do about transportation. As we've spoken about many, many times on the Automotive Hour, the best way to try to save money on a car is to buy a car that's maybe three years old. Another thing that we often has mentioned is that the cars domestically built, for instance, the General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler cars after 2008 are getting more and more complex and, in my opinion, less and less and less quality built. The cost of repairing these cars is just astronomical, and the two of them put together means that in the future, we may not have as many options when we go to buy a used car as we have today. So exactly what are folks supposed to do, and that's what we're trying to talk about today. Now, I know some folks may be thinking, well, I'll just buy a new car, and I'll buy an extended warranty, and that'll pay for the repairs for me, so I really won't have to worry about it. Really, nothing can be further from the truth. I think everybody is smart enough to realize that nobody is giving anything away for free. What extended warranty companies do is just get your money up front enough to more than cover any repair you're going to have because they're going to take a profit out of it and are also going to pay a big commission to the guy who sells you the policy. And then they're going to dole it back to you just a little bit at a time if you're lucky. It's sort of like government services. They sound real great when you hear about them up front, all the things the government's going to do for you. But once they take your tax money, how good a service do you really get? Are there really that many of them out there that are really worth the price you're paying for them? Sort of the same thing with extended warranty policy. All it is is a short-term, decreasing-value insurance policy that you're buying up front to help pay for repairs down the road. Not really a very good investment. Another thing that you might think of is, well, I'll just trade the car every three or four years. But if you stop and look at what a car costs, what it's valued at in three to four years, and the difference, your cost of driving a car is going to probably be up in the six dollars to $700 a month range if you don't go with a luxury model. That's just a regular old sedan. Another very costly mistake is what my friend Dave Ramsey calls the fleece or lease on a car. That's where you give them a big old chunk of your money up front, and then you make monthly payments probably just a little bit less than you would on a new car. But you have absolutely nothing to show at the end of the fleece. What you do instead is either give them even more of your money to keep all that you've already paid for, or you walk away with absolutely nothing and they keep the whole bundle. Fleeces, if you add everything in, including the money you paid up front, the money you paid to get out of it, you're going to find that you're still going to be up in the five dollars to $600 a month range to drive a car. And that's just an awful lot of money. What a lot of folks tell me that they're being able to do is to actually drive a car for around $200 a month. And that's what the methods that we're talking about today. Buying a car that's maybe three years old, four or five years old, taking excellent care of it, and driving it for maybe 10 to 12 years. 
that's going to get your cost of driving way, way down to a much more affordable range. So do you want to pay seven to $800 a month to drive a car, or do you want to pay $200 a month to drive a car? I guess that's the real question. I much prefer spending the $200 a month and pocketing the additional money. I mean, I can do an awful lot of things I really rather do with $600 a month, rather do a lot better than paying for a car. Another major factor that's going to go into the cost of driving a car is the type of car that you select. The fact is that some cars just have a lot worse service histories than other cars. Some cars are designed to go about 100,000 miles, and that's about it. At the end of that period, you pretty well can throw the car away because it's just about at the end of its life. This is the cars you could buy in the ten dollars to $15,000 range new. I don't need to mention any names, but I think just about everybody knows what I'm talking about. Those are okay as an entry-level car to get you into something fairly cheap, but don't plan on keeping that car for a long period of time. When those cars get to around 100,000 miles, the repairs are going to start coming at you so fast that you're just not going to be able to keep up with it. Another thing is there's a lot of cars out there that are designed to offer a lot of features at a low entry price, but they just don't give a good long-term history. Not to pick on anybody in particular, but the Dodge Caravan is a good example. It gives you a lot of features, and it is a reasonably priced vehicle. But when they get about 90,000 to 100,000 miles, you can almost count on an air conditioning unit. You can almost count on a transmission, in my experience, both of which are huge, huge repair bills. Now, when you contrast that to a vehicle like, say, a Toyota Camry or even a Ford Crown Victoria or a Mercury Grand Marquis, those cars are designed and built to last a lot longer, particularly if you get a prior to 2008 year model. Those are cars that can very easily last 200 to 300,000 miles with just a little bit of input. For instance, if you just do the proper maintenance on those cars, you can all but guarantee that they're going to go two to 300,000 miles. Now, that's almost three times the use out of the vehicle. Now, if you buy that car used, particularly, like I said, the Ford Crown Vic, the Grand Marquis, even a Chevy pickup prior to 2008, you can buy those used for a fairly reasonable price. As long as you take care of them, you can almost guarantee you're going to get a couple hundred thousand miles out of them without a lot of great expense. Take a Toyota 4Runner, for instance. That's a vehicle that we see just about every day with 200 plus thousand miles on it. And the cost of getting 200,000 miles is not that great. Sure, you're going to have to change a few things along the way. You may have to put a catalytic converter on it. And yes, that is a big expense. But if you break that expense down by the month, over the period of time you're going to drive the car, it really doesn't amount to that much in the cost of driving the car. Let's just say a catalytic converter costs $1,000. Well, if you got a car with 150,000 miles on it, you're faced with a big expense, say $1,000. What you have to ask is, if I make this repair, can I reasonably expect to go five more months without spending any money at all? Now, if the answer to that question is yes, I can reasonably expect to go five more months without any big expenses, then it's really not a very bad deal because $200 a month is what you're spending. You just have to break it down per month. Now, if you start spending $1,000 every other month, hey, it's time to do something else. Either the maintenance hasn't been done on the vehicle, wasn't a very good vehicle to select in the first place, or it's just reached the end of its useful life, which does inevitably happen. Now, how do you determine when you're approaching that point? The best thing is, if you have a trusted person who works on your car, ask them. Most shop owners are going to know which cars they spend more money on and which cars they spend less money on as far as maintenance and repair goes. If you get a good recommendation up front before buying the car, chances are you're going to buy a car that's going to have a good service history. 
Now, beyond that, let's say you've already got a car. And let's say, like most people, you really haven't taken that great a care of it. And now you got roughly 100,000 miles on it. A car with 100,000 miles that has really not been taken that great a care of, again, assuming that it is a decent car to start with, is sort of like a person who's maybe 50 to 60 years old. They can live to be 100 years old if they will change their ways right now. This is a crucial point in their life. If they don't, if they continue doing the things they're doing, by the time they get to be 65, they're going to have some major, major health issues, and possibly even they won't make it to 65. But by changing their ways right now, they may be able to easily live another 40, even 50 years beyond that. So that's the point. Bring the car to someone you know and trust and have a good general inspection performed on the car. Now, what we do at Agco with a general inspection is we will go through, we'll check all the codes that are in memory. We'll also check for pending codes. We'll check for problem failures that we know are common to that particular type of vehicle. We can do things like dropping the transmission pan. We can check and see if there's any metal inside of that pan that would indicate a transmission problem. We can check the efficiency on the air conditioning unit, see if there's any big pending problems there. There's tons and tons of things you can check and see if there are any major problems. Now, let's say you got a reasonably good bill of health. Well, now the thing is to get it on a good maintenance program. What I would recommend is to bring the car in at least once a year. If you bring your car in once a year, for most people, that's going to be between twelve and 15,000 miles. That's going to head off most of the problems that you'll be running into. What the way a lot of people do is they just wait until their car is broke or fixing to break, and then they bring it in. That's called run to fail. In other words, drive the car until you've got a problem and then bring it in. Now, I've got plenty of both kinds of customers. A lot of them, you see them regularly every year. They come in, they get everything the car needs, and then they drive another year and they bring it back. Other folks, you maybe only see them once every year and a half, every two years, but when they come in, the car is broken and it's big, big bucks to fix it. Looking through their files, you add it up. The folks who maintain their cars are spending a whole lot less money than the folks who are practicing run to fail. Another problem that you have with the more modern cars is that you just won't get symptoms. It's not like in the old days where when you needed a tune-up, the car would maybe get a little hard to start. Maybe the mileage would fall off some. Maybe the idle would get a little rough. You're just not going to see those symptoms on a modern car. The computer is able to adjust for these types of things. In fact, if you have any of those symptoms, I can guarantee you you don't need a tune-up. You need something else. Either a sensor has failed, the fuel pump's going out, or so on and so forth. The point is, you won't get a symptom. That car will start just fine, that mileage will stay just fine, and it will idle just fine until something breaks. What happens is that as the spark plugs wear out, for instance, which are a maintenance item, the gap gets wider and wider, so it requires more and more energy to jump across that gap to ignite the fuel-air mixture. The computer sees this, and it just increases the burn time on the coils. In other words, it gives it more power to make it jump the gap. Now, you might say, okay, that's great. The car's running fine. Why worry about it? Because those calls are designed with a certain duty cycle in mind. That duty cycle may be 10 to 15%. You may be exceeding that by a wide, wide measure, possibly 30 to 40%. Well, they just can't take it. So what happens is the call will actually burn up. Now, when the call burns up, you end up with a replacement of the call, not to mention the diagnostic time of finding out what's wrong, why the check engine light's on, why the car quit running, and it may even short out something like the computer itself, ending up with a $1,000 repair that could have been headed off for maybe a couple hundred dollar maintenance item. Not only that, you still got to do the maintenance item. 
So by bringing a car in once a year to a trusted professional, you can start to head off a lot of these problems. Now, a lot of folks are also capable of doing many of these things themselves. What I'd recommend to them is go to my website, click on the heading called maintenance. If you go in there, it's going to give you a real good indication of things you need to be looking at. Also, get your owner's manual out. Now, in your owner's manual, you're going to normally see two schedules. One is called regular service or normal service, which actually should be called ideal service. And the other one is going to be called severe service, which is actually more close to normal service. The difference in normal and severe service is critical. For instance, most manufacturers define normal service as an average trip of more than 10 miles at a time, not using excessive idling or sitting in stop and go traffic, not operating the vehicle above 95 degrees, and not towing anything. So if you operate under those conditions, then yeah, you could probably go with the normal service. But actually, those are ideal conditions for most folks. Most people do not drive more than 10 miles at a time. In fact, what they do is get in the car, go to work, which is generally three to four or five miles, cut the car off. It sits there until lunchtime. They get in the car, go to lunch. Maybe they drive another two miles. It sits all through the lunch break. After lunch, they go back to work. In the afternoon, they go back home. So each trip is maybe only two to three miles as opposed to 10 plus miles. Now, if you live in New Orleans or you work in Baton Rouge or so on and so forth, you're driving 50, 60, 70 miles at a time, well, those are ideal conditions. Now, under those conditions, yeah, you don't have to have 3,000-mile oil changes. Your oil can easily go 5,000 miles. However, if you're like most people, you fall under what they call severe service, although most people don't consider that severe service at all. They consider that normal, but normal is actually severe. Now, if you look at the severe service schedule, you're going to be a lot closer to the way most people actually operate. If you follow that severe schedule, you're going to put yourself in pretty good shape. Now, you got to remember the car manufacturers use maintenance recommendations as a sales tool. For instance, they go to people like Consumer Reports and so on and say, well, we've only got this few things that need to be done on these cars to maintain them. Well, Consumer Reports doesn't have the wherewithal to verify how long the car is going to last. So they say, oh, that's great. We're going to give you a better rating. You don't require as much maintenance as this guy over here. So the pressure is on to keep the maintenance down, and that's what they do. They push those intervals out to the absolute maximum allowable. For instance, when they say you can go 105,000 miles and seven years on a timing belt, well, that's what they mean. They don't mean go 110,000. That timing belt is pretty much used up at that interval. Now, another big thing, just because we're on the subject of timing belts, you got to remember it's 105,000 miles or seven years. That seven years can go by a lot faster than 105,000 miles, and it's really more critical. That's the truth with a lot of other things as well. For instance, coolant. They may tell you you can go 100,000 miles or five years. What you got to remember is the five years is far, far more critical than the 100,000 miles. If you went 100,000 miles in one year, that coolant would still look like brand new because it takes time to corrode your car. However, if you only put 30,000 miles in five years, that coolant is 100% depleted and doing damage to the car. So you got to be very, very weary of the type of driving that you're doing. We're going to take one more quick little break and we'll be back with our motive hour. And that's why Justin Bieber should never, I repeat, never be cloned. Hey, it's the Ask Alphonse Show with me, Alphonse the Know-It-All Cajun. 
caller, what you want to know? Alphonse, my six-year-old car needs about $2,500 worth of work, a new AC, and tires. You think I should do it or invest in a new car? So how much you paid for it six years ago? $40,000. Well, now it's valued at about $10,000, so it costs you $30,000 to drive it the last six years. That's $5,000 a year. Well, let's say you keep the car and spend about $2,500 on repairs every couple of years, which is about $1,200 a year. Way less than a new car, huh? Whoa, sounds like I need to keep my old car. Then bring it to Agco Automotive for regular maintenance, and it will last you even longer. Now that sounds like a good investment. Hey, Al, you got any stock market tips? Oh, for that, you got to tune to my other show, Al's Financial Hour. Learn more about the benefits of Agco at agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. And from Ico Automotive, and today's show is a pre-recorded show. However, you can always reach me by logging on to the website at www.agcoauto.com. That's agcoauto.com. You pop on there, hit the contact button, and send me an email. I'll be glad to get you an answer to any question you might have. Just go ahead and send it to me. Within 24 hours, I'll get an answer right back to you. And on today's show, we're talking about overall lowering your cost of driving a car. Of course, we started out with selecting a car and buying a used car if you need to, or possibly even buying a new car. Second segment, we talked just a little bit about taking care of a car and selecting a car. And we finished up with the way you drive your car has an awful lot to do with how much maintenance the car is going to require. That's something a lot of folks don't think about. But the way you operate your car has an awful lot to do with how much maintenance it needs and also how long the car is going to last. We see cars in all the time that have four and 500,000 miles on them. Now, that seems really incredible to some people. However, in almost every instance, these cars belong to people who actually drive their car as part of their living. For instance, they're delivery drivers, they're salespeople, and so on and so forth. A lot of times, they're putting 60, 70, 80, even 100. 100,000 miles a year on a car. Now, these are absolutely ideal conditions for the car, and cars last almost forever under those conditions. It's no trick at all getting 500,000 miles to a car if you put 100,000 miles a year, take care of it, and go five years. Cars just like to run that way. One of the reasons they do like that so much is because that once all the parts on the car are up to full operating temperature, they're running much more efficiently. For instance, when a car is cold in the startup period, it tends to run a lot less efficiently. The fuel has to run a little richer to make the car run properly, which tends to wash the cylinder walls down. Not only that, but when a car heats up, in order to start the car, maybe it's 60 degrees outside. It gets up to operating temperature of about 212 degrees. Then you shut it off when it cools down. When it cools down, all the moisture in the air around collects in the crankcase. Next time you start the car, the oil picks this moisture up and holds it in suspension because that's what it's supposed to do. Now, as long as you drive the car far enough for that oil to get back to 212 degrees, the moisture will start to boil. It'll rise up in the form of steam, and the PC system will scavenge it out of the engine. So the oil more or less cleans itself. Now, the problem is if you only drive three to five miles, 
the engine never gets up to 212 degrees, and it certainly doesn't hold it long enough to boil this moisture out. What happens in that case is the oil continues to hold this moisture in suspension. Now, each time it happens, it's not that much, but over the course of 3,000 miles, it's considerable amount of moisture has built up in the oil. This moisture starts to turn into acid and turn into sludge, which starts to attack the internal parts of the engine. Now, since it's a liquid contaminant, it goes right through the oil filter. Oil filter can't take a liquid out. Only way to possibly get that out is a drain and fill the system. Now, this holds true whether you're using synthetic oil or regular oil. That's why I'm so big on the 3,000-mile oil changes on people who do not operate their cars for long, long periods at a given time. For instance, most folks only operate three to five miles or less at any given time. They need to be under 3,000 mile oil changes. Lots of other things happen as well. For instance, transmission works much the same way. It heats up, but it never gets the full operating temperature. When it cools off, moisture starts to form. So a transmission that's operated under short stop-and-go conditions is going to need a lot more maintenance than one that's being driven down the open road. If you drive it 50 miles, when you leave town, it shifts maybe four, five, six times. It hits the open road. It's in overdrive. It's locked up with a torque converter, and it goes another 100 miles. Well, it's not doing anything but sitting there turning. It's at full operating temperature. It has full lubricant pressure. That transmission will pretty much last forever under those conditions. Now, when you're in stop-and-go traffic, you accelerate, you stop. The transmission shifts all the way up. It shifts all the way back down. You take off again. It shifts all the way back up. It shifts all the way back down. You're wearing these parts out considerably more. Not only that, but when you're sitting still, the transmission has to slip. If it didn't, the engine couldn't run. So the torque converter sitting there churning is producing heat, heat that has to be getting rid of, and the transmission fluid gets a lot hotter than it does when you're driving down the interstate with the transmission torque converter and lockup. So transmission services become a lot more crucial as well. Almost everything is going to be more critical if you're making a lot of short trips. Now, what you might try to consider, if you've got three cars and you don't drive any one of them any great amount, possibly you could narrow that down to two cars. If you narrow down two cars, you could drive both of them a whole lot more and all the cars would hold up a whole lot better. That's just something you might want to consider if you have multiple cars that you don't operate that much. Another great way to save money on your automobiles is to do as much work as you can yourself. There are certain things that you can do just as well or possibly even better than a shop. And, of course, there are some things that you really shouldn't tackle because it's going to cost you a whole lot more than bringing it somewhere. But the things that you can do yourself, if you do those, you can actually not only get maybe a better job, but you can save a whole lot of money. One of the most important things that I can think of would be all changes. Almost anyone can change their own all. If you just invest in a set of ramps to drive the car up on and a few other simple tools, you can do all changes yourself, save money, and also control the quality of the all change that you get. I've got a nice detailed topic on my website on changing your own oil. Gives you a lot of tips, things you might not normally think about. For instance, what kind of oil filter should you select? Well, a lot of folks don't realize that the filter sold by the manufacturer of the car is generally the highest quality filter that they're going to have available to them. Going to a dealership and buying a couple of these oil filters, or in some cases, you can even buy Motocraft and Delco filters from Walmart. Buying these filters, have them on hand, have them ready, so whenever you're ready to change your oil, you can do it. Also, selecting the right viscosity of oil. You need to look in the owner's manual, see exactly what all the engine calls for, and be sure you put the right viscosity of oil in. If you search under oil change, it'll bring up that story, and you can read all of that and get a lot more information on changing your own oil. Another service that you can easily do yourself, and that is changing your own power steering fluid. Now, power steering fluid is one of those things that a lot of folks don't think about 
until maybe they start to get a leak or they start to get a whining noise. Well, now they're into buying a new power steering pump, maybe $600 or more, or possibly even a new rack and pinion, possibly as high as $1,000 or more, never thinking that that maybe could have been prevented just by changing their power steering fluid. On the website, an article changing your own power steering fluid in which they talk about a partial replacement method. What you do is you extract a certain amount of the fluid, replace it with fresh fluid on a regular basis. Maybe once a year if you do this, you can almost prevent any kind of power steering problem. Very, very simple and it's something you can do yourself. There's lots of other things you can do yourself, depending on how handy you are. For instance, you may be able to replace your own spark plugs. That's something that is hard on some cars, but not hard at all on others. Now, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, of course, you can select a shop and have them do that for you. Servicing a transmission is one area that I would really recommend bringing it to a professional. Along those lines, what you don't want is when you go to a lot of shops nowadays, they're not going to do a proper service. Instead, they're going to talk you into a transmission flush. A transmission flush is a way for the shop to make a whole lot of money without having to stock a lot of filters, without having to have an ATEC available to do the service. In other words, a C-TEC can hook up this little machine and run clean fluid through a dirty transmission. The problem is it doesn't do your car any good at all, although it does help the bank account at the shop quite a bit. So you got to look out for those kinds of things. There's lots of things like that, things that are purported to be maintenance that really aren't maintenance at all. They're just a way for a shop to make more money. Now, when you bring your car to a professional and have a transmission service done, you get a couple of things that you really aren't just in the transmission service. For instance, you're having a professional drive the car. He may notice something that you just never notice because you live with it every day. He could point out something that really needs attention right now that may save you a lot of money down the road. Another big advantage is that when he drops the pan, he can take the old filter, cut it open, and look inside. Now, at this point, he can advise you on things that may be a problem for you that you could head off at low cost right now that may turn into big, big expenses down the road. Another thing is the professional may be able to adjust the bands if that transmission uses bands. He may retark the valve body bolts. He may properly adjust the shift linkage, things that is just very difficult for a do-it-yourselfer to do. So that's probably one thing where I would recommend bring it to the shop, have them do. It's just not that expensive. And if you get the right shop who's going to use the right fluid, a quality filter, and do the job properly, it's generally money very well spent. Now, a couple of other things that a do-it-yourselfer can easily handle for themselves, one will be rotating tires. It's very easy to jack the car up, rotate the tires front to rear. At the same time, you can inspect the brakes, make sure you don't have a problem, look around, make sure there's no leaks under the car, anything like that. Shake the tire, make sure it's not a loose wheel bearing or a loose part. These are things that you can easily do yourself that can save you some money. Another service that falls on that realm will be changing your own coolant. That's something that on some cars is just a tad bit difficult, but on most cars is very straightforward. If you do it on a very regular basis and never allow the coolant to become corroded, then just draining the radiator and, if possible, draining the engine block is going to be more than adequate. By replenishing, say, three-quarters of the coolant, you can replenish the additives, the corrosion protection, and so on and so forth, and you're never going to have a problem. Only a couple of things you want to remember. Number one is that there are many, many different types of coolant on the market today, and they're not all compatible. For instance, the green stuff is one thing. That is generally a phosphate or silicate-based type of coolant. 
The orange and yellow and other colors of coolant are generally OAT or HOAT, standing for Organic Asset Technology or Hybrid Organic Asset Technology. These are a completely different corrosion protection method. You should never take a car that has, say, the orange Dex cool in it, drain it out and put the green coolant back. You can create all sorts of problems, not the least of which being a leaking water pump. Another thing along those lines, once you've got the right coolant, you want to use distilled water when you go back. You don't want to dump the coolant into the engine and fill it with water out of garden hose. In fact, you don't want to do that with anything. What you want to do instead, drain the coolant out and then mix the coolant with distilled water before you pour it into the engine. Reason being, if you dump the coolant into your engine, it's heavier than water it's going to go down and settle at the lower regions of the engine. Now, on most engines, there's no circulation in the lower part of the engine. The water that goes from the water pump actually circulates through the cylinder head, goes over through the thermostat, and goes out to the radiator. At the bottom of the engine block inside, that coolant only rises and falls a slight amount by thermal expansion. But if you dump pure coolant into the engine, the coolant will be in the bottom of the engine and the water will be going around with no corrosion protection on top of the engine. So what you want to do instead is pre-mix the coolant and the distilled water before you put it into the engine. Also be aware that some engines have a bleeding procedure where you have to actually bleed the air out of the engine. A service manual will generally fill you in on this. It's not that difficult. If you fail to bleed the air out of the system, you can end up with an overheat problem. One last tip, turn your heater on high and run the car for a few minutes after you change coolant just to make sure it circulates through the heater core and you get all of that out as well. Now, right along the same lines of things that you can do and things you should not do, one of the things that I can think of that people do sometimes try to do that costs them just an inordinate amount of money, and that is diagnose problems themselves, for instance, when a check engine light comes on. That is probably one of the most expensive mistakes you can make. Far, far better to take it to a professional, have them professionally analyze the car, tell you exactly what it needs. What a professional can do is electronically eliminate all the possibilities. Say you've got a code memory for EGR valve. Well, first thing you do is you go in and you change the EGR valve. Well, now the light's still on. Okay, now what? Well, it could be something like a plugged up catalytic converter. When the converter plugs up, the exhaust can't go out the catalytic converter, so it backs up. It goes through the EGR valve. When the engine commands the EGR valve to open, it doesn't see a drop in pressure because all the pressure is backing up through the valve. You just spent anywhere from $100 to $400 for an EGR valve you didn't need, and you still got the same exact problem. Another real serious problem that we see is maybe a car that won't start. For some reason, people will automatically assume, well, it must be the fuel pump. They go out and buy a pump that is substandard to the pump they've taken out, put it on, the car still won't start. Well, what they fail to do is check to see if they had voltage, ground, and signal to the pump, and maybe in some cases they don't have the wherewithal to check that. Now they've spent a whole lot of money, they don't have as good a part as they had to start with, and they still got the same problem. Much, much cheaper to tow the car to the shop, have them check it, tell you what's wrong, even if you want to fix it yourself. At least now you know what's wrong with it. You can go ahead and do the repair yourself and save the extra money. So there are certain things that you do want to use a shop for, but there are many other things that you can do yourself and save a lot of money. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe picked up a tip or two. I want to tell everybody how much I appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. Also, a big thank you to our podcast listeners. We really appreciate you guys, and I hope you spread the word. The more listeners we got, the better it is. Preceding was opinion based on my experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.